Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it changes lives. And we thank you that your desire today is to challenge, encourage, and bless us through Thank you, Lord. Amen. In Genesis chapter 14, we have the first mention of the tithe, and it links directly to Jesus, and it follows a battle, which I'm going to describe to you very briefly so that you get the context, and uh, so please bear with me. Uh, We are told in that chapter that for 12 years, five kings in the Jordan Valley had been paying taxes to a king called King Hedelema, who was the head of a powerful army, had a reputation for bullying weaker nations. And eventually, these five kings, all of the rebels themselves, rebelled and stopped paying taxes, and as a result, Hedelema attacked, defeated, and looted their cities and took the people into captivity including Abraham's relative Lot and his family, who surely remember Lot. When Abraham was told his family had been taken captive, he set off with just 380 men and chased Kadalema and his army for 180 miles and eventually defeated them, releasing those who had been taken captive and recovering all the goods that had been looted And Abraham's victory made him the most powerful and richest man in the whole area. We then find Abraham meeting and standing between one of those kings, those rebel kings, who was the king of Sodom, and on the other side, the king of Salem, the otherworldly priest, Melchizedek. And there's a picture here of that meeting carved in the 13th century cathedral at Reeds. Now the king of Sodom owed Abraham his life, as well as his city and his people and his goods. So he offered Abraham at this point all his wealth in the city. He flattered Abraham by saying he was even willing to treat Abraham as his king. And then on the other side, Melchizedek, He's a very mysterious figure in the Old Testament. The name Melchizedek is two words in Hebrew, Melchi, Melech, King, and Zedek, which is righteousness. So he was a king of righteousness. He came from a city called Salem, which has the same root as the word Shalom. And uh, Yerushalem today is, of course, the city of peace. So here's a king of righteousness who comes from the city of peace. And what is said about Melchizedek, or actually what is not said about Melchizedek, is just as important as what is said. There's no reference to his mother or his father. There's no reference to any children. There's no reference to his date of birth. No reference to his date of death. Now those things are very significant because every priest, every true priest, had to prove that his parents and his ancestors were from a priestly line. So all those begats 
in uh, Matthew and Luke, which we find often incredibly boring, are actually proof that the person at the end of the line is descended from either a priestly family or a kingly family. Yet all we know from this passage is that this king of righteousness, who came from the city of peace, offered Abraham bread and wine. And he came in order to bless Abraham. Who does that remind you of? Yes, the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> in fact, there's a whole section of the Dead Sea Scrolls that contains prophecies about Melchizedek, which are parallel to the prophecies that we know in the scripture about Jesus. Let me just read a passage from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Melchizedek will release them from the debt of all their sins. Then the day of atonement shall follow, when he shall atone for all the sons of light, that is, people who believe in God. This is the time decreed for the year of Melchizedek's favour, and by his might he will judge God's holy ones, and so establish a righteous kingdom, as it is written about him in the Psalms of David, the Psalms, as indeed it is in Psalm 110. Verse 4, which says that the Messiah, when he comes, will be after the order of Melchizedek. Going back to where we were after this battle, Abraham now has a choice. This is before he becomes Abraham, of course. Uh, will he accept the blessing of Melchizedek and sit, submit to the one who is a godly priest king of peace? Or will he accept additional wealth from a dubious and somewhat maverick king of Sodom. Which would he choose? I suppose it's a choice that we have from time to time in life. Do we go with the attractive option that would make us look good and benefit us the most? So we think, in worldly terms. Or do we submit to the purer, godly option that offers to bless us? Abraham chose to submit to the priestly king, Melchizedek. And I think he knew enough about God's character to recognise that this Melchizedek character had a godly stamp on him. Indeed, Abraham was really responding to God. So, how did he respond? Literally, the Hebrew is, he gave him tithes of all. He gave him tithes of all. Now, a tithe is a tenth. You will have heard the word, I'm sure, from many of the tithe barns around the country. One of the most beautiful near here is the 16th century Lowesley Park tithe barn. Tithes first came to England with St. Augustine in the 6th century. By the end of the 10th century, tithe payments had become the norm everywhere up and down this land. And that was based on the Old Testament system of tithing. Villagers would bring a tenth of everything, a tenth of their crops, every harvest for the local priest, a tenth of their animals, and so on. For the local priest, the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. Now we're not told why Abraham gave a tenth, but it was his choice. It wasn't forced on him. 
It was divinely inspired. And he passed that principle on to his children. Exactly the same thinking. The next mention of the word tithe in the Old Testament is later on in Genesis 28, when Abraham is now Abraham, and his grandson, Jacob, promises to give God a tenth of everything that God gives him. So this is the beginning of the principle that responding to God with a tenth of what we have is an expectation for those who believe in the one who provides everything for us. Now responding from a position of free will is far, far better than responding by obligation or legislation. And the law which eventually commanded the tithe came about 500 years later when the, uh, Moses writes in Leviticus a tithe of everything from the land where the grain or from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. But at this point, Abraham wasn't fulfilling the law. He was doing it by his own generous spirit and by faith. There's no indication that Melchizedek made an assessment of Abraham's goods. And he goes along everything that he had and said, I want that, I want that, I want that. Nothing like that. There's no suggestion as to what the offering should be. There's no encouragement that if he gave a tenth, God would bless him even more. That is all promised later in Scripture. So Abraham's example of spontaneity here is worth noting. Second thing that is worth noting is that responding to God with what we have is to be regular and intentional. It was systematic, it was orderly, it was purposeful. Abraham went through everything himself and he gave tithes of all tithes of everything. It wasn't an estimate, it was a tithe, an accurate tenth. He then taught that to his children, who taught it to their children. And we are called to have the same care in our giving to the Lord, as we shall see later. Now we know one reason why Abraham chose Melchizedek over the king of Sodom. And he said this to the king of Sodom, and I love this phrase here. The Lord God Most High made the heavens and the earth, and I have promised him that I won't keep anything of yours, King of Solomon, not even a sandal strap or a piece of thread. Then you can never say that you are the one who made me rich. And as followers of Jesus, we no longer think that what we have is down to us, or simply our wages. We look to God to provide all our needs and we acknowledge that everything comes from Him. Lest we can say to our employer, you are the one who made me rich. Or to anybody else, you are the one who made me rich. And we acknowledge that all we have comes from Him. We thank Him regularly for His generous provision. And obviously others play a part in that. Our employer, the government, pension and so on. But it is God and only God who gives to us generously. So if we ask the question, who did Abraham pay tithes to? The answer is quite revealing. He paid them to Melchizedek, whom we have already noted is a picture of Jesus, described in Genesis 14 as the priest of God Most High. And we 
we've also noted in Psalm 110 that speaks of the coming Messiah as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in Numbers 18, we see that when the law of God was given through Moses, tithing was first and foremost given to the Levitical priesthood. It was to support the work that the priests did among the people and the work of the tabernacle. And then also those that were poor, those that were widows, those that were fatherless. And the New Testament pattern of giving derives directly from that. Paul teaches that those who preach the gospel should receive their wages from the gospel. We could develop that a lot, but I'm not going to bother here. But there are two more scriptures that I want us to look at about tithing that always inspire me, they both challenge, and they both promise blessing. The prophet Haggai warns that God is angry with those who spend their time pampering their own nests, titivating their own comfortable surroundings, whilst doing nothing to care for other people and doing nothing to look after the church of God, the people of God, the house of God. But does promise, when people get their priorities in the right order, I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you, so don't fear. And then that passage that was read by Jeremy earlier, bring the whole time into the storehouse. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. Can you imagine what the floodgates of heaven look like? You read Revelation, and you read all that uh, heaven uh, is in the mind of John, and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it, and I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruits. And that chapter also accuses the people of robbing him. How do we rob God? God. Well, bear in mind that usually a robber hopes not to be seen. But we cannot rob God without him seeing. We're doing it under his very eyes. We rob him by not giving him what is rightly his. So if we want our Christian life to be fruitful, not hindered by pests or spiritual drought and disease, we are encouraged to give generously. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice that that is often misquoted. People saying it is money that is the root of all evil. Now, the scripture says it's the love of money, which means your priorities are wrong. Love God. But in the same chapter, much less quoted is this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in that wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is actually not primarily interested in what we have. Abraham was the richest man around. Joseph of Arimathea was exceedingly rich. How do we know that? Because he was one of the few in Jerusalem who owned his own tomb. And you had to be rich to do that. It's what he did with it, what Abraham did with it, that is important. So the scripture wants us 
to see, helps us to see, that there are some things that get in the way of our submission to God's Lordship in our lives. And they can so easily become idols. That's what we need to be careful of. The cross is the place where we see the generosity of God. He gives of himself. He gives what is most precious. God loves to do that. And he loves it in people. He loves the widow who just gives what she can, the might, the tiniest coin around. But it's what she had. Or the lady who anoints Jesus with very, very expensive ointment worth about £14,000 a bottle in today's money, apparently. Now, some people argue that since tithing is found in the Old Testament, we can discard the whole concept. I have found that debates about tithing in relation to giving in our day unhelpful, for we are immediately thrown on focusing on percentages. If I give so much, then that's okay by God. If I don't, then I'm not. And the biggest question of all, of course, do I tithe from my gross income or do I tithe from my net income? And it turns people into calculators rather than people who respond with their hearts towards a generous God. And it also reinforces a belief that something to God and some things are ours. And that's not right. So, on the one hand, Jesus is clear. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it and to bring its law to its perfect conclusion through grace. And then, as all we have comes from God, we own nothing. We are simply stewards of it. So the question is not what percentage should I give away or what percentage should I keep, but how does God want me to use what he has given me so generously? My money, my time, my property. Generosity, therefore, is often a barometer of our spiritual health. It's about the whole orientation of our heart. We are citizens of heaven. We are agents of God's kingdom. How might we be involved in God's lavish demonstration of liberty towards us with all that we are and all that we have? We have a statement that is framed and uh, hanging in our home. What you are is God's gift to you. What you do with what you are is God's, is your gift to him. One remarkable sign and evidence of the Spirit's work in believers after Pentecost was their generosity. They had all things in common, they sold their possessions and gave to the poor, there was not a needy person among them. But it has to be said that as Christianity has grown older, it has become, generally speaking, less radical and more cosy. Nobody sets out to be a greedy person, but it happens. And even in church circles. And Jesus knew that our human nature would make this an issue and made this sobering statement. Nobody can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You just cannot serve God and wealth. There's an old story of a pig and a chicken walking past the cafe. The menu outside advertises bacon and eggs. The 
pig and the chicken look at each other, and then slowly, very slowly, the pig says to the chicken, it's okay for you, for you the egg is an offering. But for me, and for us pigs, it's a sacrifice. Give up? <laughs> I thought I'd muck it a lot about it. <laughs> King David once said, how can I give to the Lord something that has cost me nothing? And when we think about giving, the biblical understanding is that, that we give the best, the first fruits, we give generously, we give happily, hilariously actually the Greek word means, we give sacrificially, intentionally, and we give regularly. And it's great today that we can give by our standing order or direct debit. But one disadvantage of that is that we don't actually participate in the act of giving. And uh, after a while it just goes from our bank and we don't even notice that it's gone. We get used to it. So you might consider holding some back each month to give to anyone or any cause spontaneously during the month. Because it is so such a blessing to give and to, to see people's responses when you give. Another root of generosity is the biblical position about everything we receive. And that is, pass it on. Pass it on. If the Lord speaks to you and encourages you, pass it on. If the Lord blesses you materially, then use those blessings to bless others. In 2 Corinthians we see Paul teaching that principle. Your plenty will provide their need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply your need. Later on he says, you will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. The richer we are, the more generous we should be. And one of the great passages of scripture that speaks of God's never-ending generosity is God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And let me close with a quote from Winston Churchill, who said this, We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Let's pray. Father, when your Son gave his life for us, it was a demonstration not only of your love towards us, but your huge compassion and sacrifice in order that we may be blessed, in order that we may be forgiven our sin, that we may be no longer slaves, but free. Father, we do thank you that you have given so much to us. We pray that our response to you might be spontaneous, happily given, generously given. And teach us, Lord, how our life is to be one of giving as well as receiving. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.